It is good to be with you this morning. We have been looking forward to meeting you, and hopefully you've been looking forward to meeting us. I want to introduce my family to you, uh, my wife of soon to be 26 years. We celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary last May, Helen. If you would stand, she is originally from Beaver Dam, Virginia. My son, Jonathan, he uh, graduated from Regent University in Virginia Beach back this past summer and just started a brand new job this week with the Trinity Broadcasting Network, TBN, doing video editing for them. Jonathan, if you would stand. And for any of you that know that stage in life, we are now paying off college loans and uh, uh, seeking to enjoy that process. Emphasis on the word seeking. Uh, allow me to share just a little bit about myself uh, in connections with this part of the state before I get into the bulk of the message. And I'm not going to try to bore you with my life story, but um, I got saved when I was in the fifth grade in Patrick County at Springs of Life Camp. And I have always had a special connection to that county and to that place and got on the internet several years ago and found the little chapel on the side of the mountain there, and I was able to go inside vis-a-vis technology, and then I called my wife in there. I said, that's where I trusted Jesus as my Savior, right up there in front of that little chapel. And uh, so that's been a special connection that we've shared. Uh, 31 miles from here is a farm in Gretna, Virginia, and my mother's family is from Danville, And I had an aunt and an uncle that lived in Gretna, and they had a farm. And I used to go out to that farm when I was a child, and I spent many, many wonderful days and weeks on that farm as a kid and as an adolescent and even as a young adult. They raised tobacco on one, the back part of it and wheat one year and soybean on the other. They had pigs, and my grandmother used to go down and slop the hogs And I remember I was raised in the city, but I was fascinated with slopping the hogs. And she'd get down there, and she would take that cornmeal and mix it in with the food scraps, and those pigs would go after it. It looked so good. I wanted to just get in there and eat some slop with them sometimes. It it looked so good. uh, But I have wonderful memories um, of that farm in Gretna and in the uh, Danville area, and we periodically get back there to visit. I pastor in the eastern part of the state now in Chesapeake and very close to the Chesapeake-Norfolk line. I tell people I pastor in the hood, in the inner city. I like to tell people it's all good in the hood. And uh, a lot of the communities that we work in, I am the ethnic minority. Uh, When I go into those communities, our church has a football league and a basketball ministry. And uh, that's been an exciting part. I find myself constantly doing cultural adjustments uh, when I get into those uh, two particular atmospheres, but it's been a great experience learning to share the Lord Jesus in those places. Throughout the message this morning, I'm going to share some stories from the years that I've been a pastor, so you all get a good feel for me, and then I know we're going to have a Q&A time we're looking forward to sharing with you this afternoon. When I was the pastor of Red Lane Baptist Church about... Ten years ago in Powhatan, Virginia, outside of Richmond, we began to sense that God was calling us to a very intentional approach to do missions. 
And we began to do in stateside missions, but then God began to move upon us to look overseas. And this was a new step for the church and a new step for me. We made a linkage through the Southern Baptist Foreign Mission Board with missionaries in Venezuela. And we began to take mission trips to Venezuela. And primarily what we did when we went to Venezuela was conduct vacation Bible schools. Now, I'm a vacation Bible school fanatic. I love doing Bible school. And we would go down to Venezuela and conduct these Bible schools. And on one of our trips, they told us you're going to be doing a Bible school in an orphanage. And we got over to the orphanage and we began working with the children there, boys and girls. And they began to tell us some of the stories of these children. And there was one little girl there who was about eight or nine years of age. And they said, this little girl was picked up on the side of the highway. We don't know where she came from. We don't know who her family is. We don't know her name. And she is so traumatized by whatever happened to her that she has not spoken a word since she has been in this orphanage. And so as we went through the week with her, she would participate in making crafts. She would listen to the Bible stories. She would sit and listen to us as we sang the Bible school songs in Spanish. But she never said a word. On Thursday of that week, as we were coming to the close that particular day, we were reviewing the Bible verse for the day. And there was one little boy who began to say the verse, and all of a sudden she opened her mouth and interrupted him in mid-sentence and corrected him on how to say the verse correctly. And then she became a chatterbox. She just began to talk, and our team sat there in utter amazement. And watching a little girl who hadn't said anything, just talk and talk and talk. And when we came back on Friday, she continued to just, the words were just rolling. And this is what I learned. When Jesus touches someone's life, He heals them and He changes them. We saw Jesus touch a traumatized little nine-year-old girl in that Bible school and begin to work healing inside of her. When Jesus comes to town, He changes everything. He changes the lives that He touches. He changes the circumstances that He becomes a part of. When Jesus comes to town, I'd like for you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Mark's Gospel, chapter 10. Mark's Gospel, chapter 10. It is the story of the Lord Jesus coming to town when Jesus came to Jericho. Now, it's a little confusing when you read the New Testament and it talks about Jericho because it'll talk about Jesus came into Jericho, Jesus left Jericho. There were two Jerichos in the New Testament period. There is what is known as ancient Jericho of the Old Testament period. In fact, scholars believe it is the oldest city in world history. And then there is the Jericho of Jesus' day, referred to as New Testament Jericho. The two are about a mile and a half apart from each other. The New Testament Jericho, where this story takes place, was a very nice place to be. It had beautiful palm trees. There was a spring there which produced some 30,000 cubic feet of water daily. The soil was rich. 
It was a wonderful place to live, and it was fairly close to the city of Jerusalem, only 15 miles to the east. It was to the north of the Jordan. Now, you'll notice in the story today that there is a crowd that's moving with Jesus. This story takes place inside of two weeks before the Passover. And as the Jewish people would make their way to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover, they would come up to Samaria, and they didn't want to go to Samaria or through Samaria because they despised the Samaritans, so they would cross the Jordan, go through Jericho, and then recross the Jordan to head up to Jerusalem. And that's why Jericho was filled with crowds as people progressed on their way up to the city of Jerusalem. Because Jericho was a place with a lot of rich people, it was a place with a lot of beggars. Beggars knew that if they went and sat beside the road, that there was a good chance that the rich folks who lived in Jericho would have lots of money on them, and they would hope would be that they would throw money in their direction, and they could get some, hence the beggar, in this particular story. It is interesting also that it was very characteristic in those days that when teachers would move along, that instead of sitting in classrooms and learning like we do today, what the teachers in those days would do, and I sort of like this form of teaching, they would walk. And the students would gather around them, and they would begin a dialogical type of experience of asking questions and the, stu- and the teacher teaching, etc. It was very much of a walking, talking experience, and that's what's going on here. Jesus is proceeding down the road. He would be talking. He would be asked questions, and the people are dialoguing back and forth with one another. Jericho was also a place where a lot of the priests lived. They would journey to Jerusalem, get up to Jerusalem, and they would be there for the high holy days, and then they would go back to Jericho, which sort of functioned like a suburb, a distant suburb of Jerusalem. And so the city is filled with priests. Keep that in mind, because the priests did not accept the Messiahship of Jesus. If anything, at this point, they were threatened by Jesus, angered by Jesus, and were beginning to plot against Jesus. Let's join the story in Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, beginning with verse 46. And they that is speaking of Jesus and his disciples came to Jericho. And as Jesus was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, and the words Timaeus there means honor, which meant he would have come from a family of honor, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, He began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And as Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, Take heart, get up. He is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up, came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight 
and followed Jesus on the way. When Jesus comes to town, communication is essential. When Jesus comes to town, communication is essential. Bartimaeus got up every morning, could not see. It was very characteristic in that day and age because of unsanitary conditions, because of the glare of the sun, because dust easily got in people's eyes, that eye diseases were very common, and doctors didn't know how to treat eye disease. And so if you got an eye disease, you were going to end up suffering probably partial blindness, in his case, complete and total blindness. And so Bartimaeus is there by the side of the road, and he's doing what he does every day when he gets by the side of the road. And Bartimaeus is a beggar. Beggars in those days had no social nets to fall into like we have in our culture today. So if you were a beggar in those days, you literally sat by the road, you sat in your blindness, and you begged and you pleaded constantly for people to throw some money at you because that was only subsistence that you had. Now, it's interesting in this story that his last name is Timaeus, which means a person of honor. Chances are he came from an honorable family, hence the family name, but he had fallen from that honor from a place of honor and a family of honor, to now being by the side of a road begging. In one of the other accounts, one of the other Gospels, it's interesting that when Bartimaeus sits there, he hears this crowd coming by. can't see anything, but he can tell something important is happening because this crowd is coming by. And so he asks someone, he says, who's coming by? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. But when Bartimaeus begins to yell for Jesus, he does not say Jesus of Nazareth. He says, Jesus, son of David. You see, the person who told him it's Jesus of Nazareth gave a geographical identity to Jesus. But when Bartimaeus cries out for Jesus, he gives a prophetic identity to Jesus. He gives a messianic identity to Jesus. He doesn't say, I want Jesus of Nazareth, the guy that's from Nazareth. He says, I want the Messiah who is from God. I don't just need a guy from Nazareth. I need the one who is the Son of God, the Messiah of God. Son of David was a title for Jesus that was prophesied that the Messiah would have. It tied Jesus to the bloodline of King David. David had said, the Lord had said to David, David, you are my king of Israel. And through your bloodline, the Messiah will come. Jesus was born in Bethlehem because that traced him to David's lineage. And so the Jews anticipated that when the Messiah would come, he would be the son of David, and his identity as the son of David, his title as the son of David, meant that he would be the Messiah. Somebody or somebodies had told Bartimaeus about Jesus. The Bible doesn't tell us who, but whoever it was gave Bartimaeus very accurate information. Somebody had told Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus, this is what the Messiah is going to be like when he comes. Bartimaeus, this is what the Messiah is going to do when he comes. He will have the power to heal people who are blind. Bartimaeus, he will have the authority 
to command the healing of physical bodies. Bartimaeus, when the Messiah comes, he will have the love to take the power of God and direct and channel the power of God to the hurts of people and the diseases of people. It's not just a power thing with the Messiah. It is even more a love thing with the Messiah. And He will know how to take power and mix it with love and touch people's lives and change them. This is who the Messiah is going to be. Someone had given Him very accurate information. But then they had tied the information to Jesus. Bartimaeus, when you hear about Jesus... This guy heals people. This man has raised people from the dead. This man teaches truth like you've never heard truth told before. Bartimaeus, this man must be the Messiah because he does what the Bible says the Messiah is going to do. Someone had given Bartimaeus accurate information. Folks, when we go out and tell people about Jesus... They are going to sit in the darkness until they get accurate information about who Jesus is. You see, if someone had not, or some folks had not gone to Bartimaeus and told Bartimaeus about who the Messiah was going to be and who Jesus was and tied those truths together and said, Jesus is the Messiah, you realize that Jesus could have walked by that day and Bartimaeus would have sat in his blindness and never known the difference. It took people giving Bartimaeus accurate information, communicating to him who Jesus was that made the difference. We don't know when they told him, how long it took for it to sink in, but God always honors his word. When I was pastoring at Red Lane Baptist, we began taking what we call the Norfolk Mission Trip. And every summer, about the second week of July, we would pack up as uh, most of our, a lot of our church family. Like last year I was at that church, we took 120 of us to Norfolk. And we went and we did 10 vacation Bible schools. A bunch of them in the afternoons, a bunch of them in the evenings. And one of the communities that we went to in Norfolk was called Park Place. Now, Park Place is an interesting place. I remember when I first learned about Park Place, uh, it is known for drugs, it is known for gangs, it is known for crime out to Wahoo. I mean, Park Place is a rough place to be. And the first time I, I had a team, we were down there the year before that, and uh, some of my mission folks called me, and they had gotten lost in Norfolk, and I said, where are you? And they gave me the street address, and I looked on a map, and I said, You guys are in Park Place. It's very dangerous there. You need to get out of there as quickly as possible. Then I did something very stupid. I turned to one of my uh, deacons, and I said, the team's in Park Place. That's a dangerous place to be. And then I sort of laughed, and I said, watch God call us to Park Place. Never say those kind of things (laughs) in the presence of the Lord, because I think sometimes the Lord just sort of takes that as a challenge. The next year, we were in Park Place. And uh, we went into Park Place, and we began to do a Bible school that first year, and, and it was tough getting that thing started. The community didn't know us, and we didn't know them, but we began to work in Park Place. And I took a group of folks from Palatine. My folks were suburban, rural people, and we went into the middle of the inner city, and God did all kinds of things. And we went back the next year and the next year, but what we noticed was nobody was coming to Christ. 
I would get up at night times, and we do it every night in our mission projects. We do what we call a report of the sites, and they would share with us what was happening at different sites, and people were getting saved in this part of Norfolk and that part of Norfolk, and nobody was coming to Jesus in Park Place. I started wondering if it was possible to get saved in Park Place because nobody came to Christ. About five years into doing those Bible schools, we started seeing the youth part, the teenager part, get larger than any other part of the Bible school. And what we saw happening was the kids, as they were arriving into their teen years and kept coming back year after year, we were watching the youth section. About seven years into this, I get up one night, team report, and I say, what happened in Park Place today? And our leader stands up and she says, we had all these people get saved. The next night she said, we got all these people got saved. And the next night she tells me all these people got saved. And this is what I began to realize. For seven, about seven years we had gone every year. We had shared Jesus and shared Jesus and shared Jesus. And we wondered if we were getting anywhere doing that. But what we discovered is if you go into a community and you talk about Jesus long enough and you pray for the power of the Holy Spirit of God to fall on that neighborhood, sooner or later something is going to happen. God's Word will not return unto Him void. It will prosper where He sends it. The Spirit of God will take the Word. He will work the Word. And we begin to see God do a work in Park Place because the Word of God had been planted there. you got to communicate Jesus is in town. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus can change things if he shows up and just stay at it and God will take it and God will use it. Communication is essential. I'll never forget one night we were wrapping up one of those Bible schools and a mom walked up to me and she had her son there and our son looked to be probably about third grade. Kid had dirt on his face and so forth and she stood there and looked in front of me. She says, I want to thank you so much for you all coming to Park Place. She said, the children in this neighborhood don't have much to laugh about. And she said, this week, this neighborhood has been filled with laughter. You know, where Jesus shows up, people start smiling and people start laughing sooner or later. And Jesus comes to town. Communication is essential, but I want you to see this next. Courage is required. Bartimaeus is sitting there. And in verse 48, he begins to yell out, Jesus Son of David, have mercy on me. The crowd does not come to Bartimaeus and say, keep on yelling. They come to Bartimaeus and tell Bartimaeus to shut up. Be quiet, Bartimaeus. Now, my guess is some of the people who came in, it says many people came to him and told him to be quiet. I have a feeling some of them were priests who were very irritated that Bartimaeus is using the title Son of David on Jesus. He's not the Messiah. You have absolutely no business yelling and calling out to him to be the Messiah. So shut up, Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus has a decision he's got to make. Am I going to keep calling out for Jesus, or am I going to shut up? What was between Bartimaeus and his miracle? was intimidation. Was he going to accept intimidation or was he going to keep yelling for Jesus? And folks, when God wants to do a work in your life, there's always going to be somebody or something that's going to try to stand in between you and what God's got for you. When the Lord wants to move in your life, there's always going to be something 
that's going to try to stand between you and God and intimidate you and say, don't cry out for him. Sometimes it's relatives that we have. Sometimes it's friends that we've got. Sometimes it's traditions that we carry. Something inside of us or around us is going to be saying to us, don't cry out for Jesus. You don't really need him. He doesn't really care about you. You look ridiculous calling out to Jesus like that. And Bartimaeus had to decide, I am going to press through the intimidation. And I'm going to keep calling out to Jesus. Imagine what he must have felt as people were telling him, Bartimaeus, shut up and be quiet. Now think about this. Bartimaeus is sitting there and the people are saying to him, Bartimaeus, be quiet, be quiet. And Bartimaeus is sitting there and he's thinking, no doubt, I smell bad. I'm a beggar. I sit in Middle Eastern heat all day long and cry out. I sweat profusely. I smell bad. I am a reject in society because I'm blind. I cannot see. I don't have any money. So why would Jesus bother with me? My clothes or rags. If I showed up at the synagogue, I would be an embarrassment. So why should Jesus bother with me? But deep in Bartimaeus' heart, faith was beginning to well up that if this Jesus is the Messiah, if he is who he says he is, then he's going to love me past my stench. He's going to love me past my clothes. He's going to love me past my bank account. He's going to love me in spite of my status or lack thereof. Jesus Love will press through all of that, and because His love will pass through all of that, I will press through all of the opposition, and I'm going to get to Him. So many times we miss a miracle because we get intimidated out of a miracle. It's not because God doesn't want to work. It's not because God doesn't want to pour out His power. It's because we give up just before the miracle is going to be delivered. We get intimidated just before it's going to happen. We're not sure that God loves us enough for it to happen. When I was a student at Southwestern Seminary, my evangelism professor was Dr. Roy Fish. And I remember Dr. Fish came into class one day, and we were studying revivals. And not defining them as a bunch of meetings, but as a genuine outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God. And he walked into class, and he looked at us, and he says, Do you believe that God loves you enough to give you revival?" He says, because that's ultimately what it comes down to. Do you believe that God loves your church enough to pour out His Spirit and give you revival? Bartimaeus had to press through all of that. He had to press through the intimidation. Churches have to press through intimidation. We have a community a few, about a mile from our church called Digstown. Digstown is a public housing project of about 400 homes. Averages about four to five residents per home. And I mean they are packed into a small area. And Digstown has a bad rep. And we begin to do ministry in a public housing project several years ago across from Digstown. And I begin to pray and say, God, would you lead us into Digstown? When are you going to take us into Digstown? And I remember I just look at that neighborhood and say, Lord, when are you going to take us over there? Well, the Lord took us over there, and we had a great Bible school the first year. The second year, as we were doing our mission trip training, we, uh, we do a big project every year called the Southampton Roads Mission Project, or uh, abbreviated SHRIMP. 
And we have about 250 folks that are a part of that, both from our church and from churches across from Virginia. And we got a church in North Carolina that comes and works with us. And we, again, it's similar to the Norfolk mission trip we used to do. We do Bible schools and sports camps and any other way we can share Jesus across Hampton Roads. Well, we got into mission trip training, and they had a night out on that field around Memorial Day where someone went by one night and sprayed the field with bullets, and they had took people got wounded, etc. July 4th weekend, the same thing happened. Somebody goes by in a gang incident, and they're shooting off firearms and so forth. And the community leader in Digstown, who's a member of my church, she said, called me up and she said, Pastor, we've had another shooting out here. She said, we're going to have to make a decision whether we're going to do this Bible club or not. Because the Bible school is held out on two big fields, and there is absolutely no protection out there. And so I begin to pray, and I ask our team to go to prayer. And let me say, whenever you start getting outside the walls of the church and doing mission work, you're going to hit spiritual warfare. And anytime you take on the devil's strongholds, you will begin to engage in spiritual warfare. And one of the things the Lord's been teaching us is the major way you fight spiritual warfare is in prayer. And so our team began to just pray, God, would you pour out your spirit? Would you open the door? Would you give us safety? And I made the, we made the decision, we are going into Digstown in spite of the violence that's going on there. And so we went into Digstown and we opened it up. And I remember about halfway through that week, I stood in the midst of what was going on and on fields where there had been screaming and crying and bullets flying a few weeks earlier, there were now vacation Bible school songs playing and kids singing. Where there had been fear, there was narrow love, where there was places where people had run from, now they were coming to hear the word of God and get receiving food to eat because we feed on all these sites. And I stood in that field and I said, this field has been transformed by Jesus from a place of violence to a place where he is pouring out his spirit and he is working. In Digstown, I met a young man named Thomas. Thomas began to come to our church. He was, I think, a sophomore or junior in high school at that time. Served in my summer jobs program. Thomas came to know Jesus as his Savior last summer. And I had the joy of baptizing him at our church picnic in the Atlantic Ocean. We catch a wave and take them under. Sometimes the waves take me under with them. Thomas is now our drummer in our praise band. If you come on Sunday morning, you'll see Thomas over there playing the drums. Two weeks ago, I baptized Thomas's mother. Folks, if I come here as your pastor, you're going to get sick of hearing me saying this. But well, I am so sick and tired of the church of Jesus Christ being intimidated by people and neighborhoods and communities. And we say, that's the bad part of town. Or you can't reach those people. The devil is who is telling us that. Those neighborhoods are reachable. Those neighborhoods can know the outpouring of the Spirit of God if we will just go and share Jesus with them. And someone says, well, we might get hurt or something might happen. And I always tell our teams, I cannot guarantee your safety. What I can guarantee you is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God. What I can guarantee you is you will see God work. But what I have noticed is when we go in and we believe that God's going to work and we love people in Jesus' name, it is amazing what happens in a neighborhood. Years ago, I was in Virginia Beach and we took a small neighborhood and we went in there and we did a Bible school and the place was so small, we literally had to do the Bible school out of the trunk of the cars. Put our crafts in the trunk, just threw the trunk up and put the stuff out there. 
About three days into that Bible school, one of my members who lived in that neighborhood came to me and she said, Pastor, God's working in this neighborhood. She says, I don't know what happened, but all the drug dealers have disappeared. She said, they're usually out here peddling drugs. And she said, the drug dealers are gone. And I smiled. I said, when Jesus shows up in the neighborhood, he chases the drug dealers away. You can't allow intimidation to stop you. My brother of here works in the Gideons. I'll tell you a funny story about the Gideons. We were in Digstown that summer. And we had arranged for the Gideons to come and do a Bible distribution during the Bible school. We were feeding the kids, and we knew that when you're in the city of Norfolk and you're doing mass feedings, you better have a food handler's license on you because if the health department shows up, they'll shut you down. Well, the, D- the Gideons showed up, and they were in white shirts and ties. This is in July, and I just knew it was a health department. My blood ran cold in my veins when they came up. I didn't see their New Testaments. And I just knew it was the health department, and they had come to shut us down. I was frantically looking for, you know, make sure I had somebody there who had their food handler's license on them. And when that brother walked up and pulled out his New Testament, and I saw his, he said he was from the Gideons, I could have hugged him. I was like, thank God, it's the Gideons and not the health department showing up here. Don't allow the devil to intimidate you as to what God's got in store for you. Courage is required when Jesus comes to town. Next, I want us to see in verse 49 that Jesus changes things when he comes. Notice what happens in the story. Bartimaeus is crying out for the Lord. And I love what happens. Jesus stopped. Jesus stopped. Who did he stop for? He did not stop for the emperor of Rome. He did not stop for the great high priest of Israel. He did not stop for the mayor of Jericho. He stopped for a beggar. He stopped for the guy in town that nobody else stopped for. Do you realize when you call out on Jesus, He stops for you? He stops for you. And who stopped? Sometimes when we think about Jesus, what we need to do is just roll through our minds who the Bible says He is. Who stopped? The Messiah stopped. The Son of God stopped. The bright in the morning star stopped. The fairest of 10,000 stopped. The lily of the valley stopped. The King of kings and the Lord of lords Stopped. The one who had created Bartimaeus, created the dirt that Bartimaeus set in, created the sun that shone in his face, created the air that he was breathing, created everything around Bartimaeus, stopped. When you and I say Jesus, he stops. A pastor in Hampton Roads, it's fast paced. You feel like you're taking your life on your hands sometimes when you get out in the highway. We're just going all the time. I don't know if it's that way here in Rocky Mountain or not, but I've noticed in American cultural life today, we're always running. We don't stop for anything. But Jesus stopped. And He stops. And He stops for us. When you call out to Him, He 
stops and he gives you full attention. I've had some people say to me through the years, well, pastor, I'm not a church person. I wasn't raised in church. I don't know how to talk church. I don't know how to dress church. I don't know how to act church. And what I say to folks when they say that to me is, that's fine because Jesus doesn't just stop for church people. Jesus stops for anybody who calls out to him. He stopped. And what did he do when he stopped? Notice, first of all, what Bartimaeus does. They say, call him over here. And it says he threw away his cloak. Now, there was significance in that. The cloak was used by beggars to collect their money. That was their security blanket. When Bartimaeus stands up and takes his cloak and throws it off of him, what Bartimaeus is saying by his action is, I don't need a security blanket anymore. My security is in Jesus. I am walking to my security. I am being called to my security, and I don't need this blanket anymore. And folks, when you and I hear his voice and we follow him, we get to throw away all the security blankets because Jesus has become our security blanket. He walks up to Jesus and he stands there in front of Jesus and Jesus looks at him and Jesus says, what do you want? Now he believes Jesus is the Messiah, got all the power in the world. And we say, yeah, he, he wants his healing. But just think about this. If Bartimaeus had said, well, Jesus, you're the son of God and you got all the power in the world and I like my eyesight, but I really would like some money. Could you give me a bunch of money? Or Jesus, I don't have any power. Could you give me some power and prestige? I mean, his disciples earlier have been arguing about that very thing, who was going to be greatest in the kingdom. So why shouldn't Bartimaeus ask, can't I be greatest in the kingdom? Jesus, I want to be popular. My family used to be a family of honor. Could you restore our honor? Let me tell you what Bartimaeus did. Bartimaeus asked for the one thing. His eyesight. So he could do what? So he could see the man who healed him. Money wouldn't do that. Power wouldn't do that. Prestige would not do that. But when he opened his eyes for the first time in that healing, he looked straight into the face of Jesus. And when we come to Jesus, and he stops and he calls us, What are we asking Jesus for? Are we asking him, God, would you give me this? Would you give me that? Would you do this for me? Would you restore honor? Would you give me prestige and honor, Lord? Would you give us some money? Or do we say, Jesus, more than anything, I want to see you. I want to see you. Give me the eyes to see you and experience you. Years ago, I was pastoring, and I was real frustrated in the pastorate. And I told God I wanted out of the church that I was in. And I went to the Lord over and over again, and I told the Lord I wanted out. And God said, nothing. I mean, I just got zilcho in prayer. It was, I might as well praying to a brick wall. Now, when you ever that happens to you, God is saying something in the silence. Usually what we don't want to hear. And uh, so I, 
I finally went one day and I sat down and I said, all right, Lord, I want out of this church and you know I want out of this church and you're not listening to me and so I'm going to tell you one more time and God said to me, I'm not moving you. And I said, well, why aren't you going to move me? And God said, because if you can't learn to love the people you got in front of you, how in the world do you think you go going to love another group of people somewhere else? And I was like, hmm. That was not what I was expecting to hear. Are you supposed to tell me I'm such a great preacher and you want to use me and all the rest? And you're just jacking me up here and telling me that I'm sort of louse as far as you're concerned. And the Lord said, you're going to have to go back and love these people. And they're not going to change. So you've got to learn to love them the way they are. See, what God was trying to tell me was, I'm not going to change your people because I'm trying to change you. So I said, all right, Lord, I'm going to go back. I'm going to love these people the way they are, even if they don't change. And one of the things that I realized in that process was I wasn't going to see Jesus until I learned to love people the way Jesus loved people. But Jesus was not interested in, in me being promoted. He was interested in my folks being promoted. Jesus changes. What do you want? Lord, I want my eyesight. Notice what it says happened after he got his eyesight. He says it followed Jesus in the way. It was a term used in those days for discipleship. Listen, when Jesus changes you, he doesn't change you on Sunday at the altar so you can go back to being whoever you were on Monday. Jesus begins a process of change that continues for the rest of our life. We call it discipleship. Now, the other thing I want you to see that happened in Nicodemus, excuse me, you guys are going to say that, Bartimaeus, is that Bartimaeus got a new identity. Think about it. He went from being the man in town who was blind to the man who could see. He went from being the guy who was the beggar to the guy who had it all and had something to give away. He went from a guy who was defined by illness to a guy who was now defined by healing. He went from a man who sat by the roadside to a man who was now walking behind Jesus. And he went from a man who had no purpose to now one who was living with eternal purpose. You see, when Jesus touches us and works in us, Jesus gives us a new identity. And when Jesus works in a church... He gives a church a new identity. When I went to Red Lane Baptist as pastor, I remember I sat down in the pastor search process when I went there to candidate that weekend, and I met with the WMU, Women's Missionary Union, and they sat down and they said, Pastor, we didn't meet our Lottie Moon offering goal this year. And our church is really struggling in the area of missions. And so when I became the pastor of that church, we began to really emphasize missions. We started doing the Norfolk mission trip, and I share with you about the work that we began doing in Venezuela. And what God began doing in our church is He began to change our church. Red Lane was a good church. 
It was a faithful Southern Baptist church. But God began to change us into a missional church. Where we weren't just satisfied to be in our building on Sunday morning and have a good time. Where we begin to move out of our community and say we've got to go outside these walls and we've got to take what's inside these walls and we've got to get it out to people outside these walls. We had a, a program to go into Richmond and we would go there every month and we would begin to feed the homeless. We began feeding homeless people. The church had that before I got there and we just continued to work with it and we watched God do a work in that. And then we began to train other people and how to feed the homeless in Richmond. And then the Lord took us to Norfolk, and we began to do the Norfolk mission trip. And as we were doing that trip, the Lord began to lead us not just to do that trip, but to begin to train and equip other churches to go and to work in the Norfolk area. And then God called us into international missions. And we began to develop a new identity as a church that we were not just a gathering church, we were a going church, and we were a church that was sending the gospel of Jesus Christ in as many places as we could go, and God would call us. Last Friday, I was out walking my dog, and I got a call from a lady in that church, and she said to me in the conversation, David, we are still doing missions. What she was telling me was, that's our identity now. We are a church on mission, doing missions. And God did a work, or a youth minister. He did a great job leading worship. He took our youth group to 70-some teenagers on Wednesday night. And he was just doing an outstanding job. And God began to move in his heart and the heart of his family. Eric Haney is his name. And Eric and Anissa felt God calling them into international missions, and they became the first Southern Baptist missionaries to Sweden. They're in Sweden this morning serving the Lord. Then my children's minister, and they were in their 50s, and they began to sense that God was moving in them, and they are in Asia today serving as missionaries, as senior adults. I used to joke you didn't want to be on our staff because you were probably going to get called into missions if you served on our staff. But that's what God was doing. And we had to sort of rethink church because we were having to rethink the call of God on us. When Jesus comes to town, He changes us. He changes His church. Are you here today? And you want to be changed by Jesus. You feel a bit like Bartimaeus did. I'm sitting by the roadside. And I want to be touched by him. And I want to be changed by him. I feel like I'm sitting by the roadside of life. And the dust is flying in my face. But Jesus has come by my life. You see there were people there that day that heard him. And went home and stayed the same. But Bartimaeus was never the same again. And you want the touch of Jesus. In a moment, as we sing a hymn of invitation, I'm going to invite you to come down to the front and say, today I want to follow Jesus like Bartimaeus. Today I want to be changed by Him. I want to be touched by Him. And as a church, are you willing, are you ready to hear the call of God on you as a people? To say, man, it's great here. 
But we want to take what we are experiencing beyond these walls so that folks will sing, He's a great, great Father who haven't been singing and don't even know today that He's a great, great Father. One of the things we did one year when we got back from Venezuela is I played a recording for our congregation of children in Venezuela singing Jesus Loves Me in Spanish to help them understand children are singing about the love of Jesus in their language who were not singing about His love, didn't even know about His love until you guys went and told them. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this time of decision, Lord, help us to say to you, Lord, we'll go wherever you want us to go. We will follow you wherever you want us to go. We will be who you want us to be. Whatever you require of us. And we will do it, Lord Jesus, with you. Our heads bowed and our eyes closed. In just a moment as we sing, if you need to give your life to Jesus, I invite you to come down here. I'd love to pray with you about the most important decision you can ever make in life, and that is saying to Jesus, I want to love you, I want to follow you, I want to serve you, Jesus. I want to give my life to you. If you sense that God is leading you to become part of this church family, I invite you to come. If you sense that God is moving and speaking to you and saying, I need to take a new level of surrender to Him, and He's been moving in my life and moving in me and just calling me to something I've been saying no or resisting or... Maybe just becoming clear, and I just need to yield to his call. I invite you to come so folks can pray with you. Lord, have your way with us right now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.